Hello, readers. Merrill Hodge is a former NFL running back, football analyst, and an activist in concussion research, prevention, and treatment of brain injuries, as evidenced by his book Brainwash, The Bad Science Behind CTE and the Plot to Destroy Football. It takes guts to publicly go against the mainstream narrative about such a serious subject. What was the motivating factor in you writing this book? Well, listen, the motivating factor, quite honestly, um, you probably had to back up. I mean, things had not been making sense for a long time. I started coaching my son in 2003. And while I was excited about him playing football when he decides he wants to play football, is that I'm going to be able to really – create a better environment, a safer environment than what I had based on what happened to me in my career um, from not just equipment uh, and instruction aspect, but I established a head trauma protocol for my team and then eventually became really part of, of, the, uh, uh, of our youth program. And then by the time you know, 2009 comes around, I'm in front of Congress trying to challenge them to establish protocols for ages 8 to 18. But I think the thing that tipped it for me, that where I, I finally realized a book was required, is when I start seeing the headlines from, you know, CT and concussions this and this causing that. I have an MD and a PhD in common sense and experience. Hmm. So my first thought was like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, when I see 110 out of 111 brains, and keep in mind, Mike Webster was my roommate. Justin Strelzik was a teammate of mine. Um, so those deaths are very personal to me. Um, but I know this from a statistics aspect when I, uh, in college, 111 is not the number of former NFL players. 27,000 is that number. And then when I read the article, I'm like, it, it, none of this makes sense. You can't blame a, a tragic here, a tragedy here, a tragedy there on the whole, uh, the whole population. So, I really started to dig and I started like, oh, listen, I have a life philosophy and I actually wrote a book on this, but it's been find a way that those words have helped me live a dream and fight to live. Um, they inspire action. And when you don't know something or you need help in something, well, go find people that are good at it. Find out people that know what they're talking about. So I went from shoot from New York to LA up into Canada to talk to the greatest minds in the world trained neuropathologists. And I think that's important because there's those type of neuropathologists that study it. They see it from as far people that are trained in it, which were important. I wanted to hear what they had to say about the facts. What is the science really saying? Well, I am telling you this. There was one common theme I would always hear. They would always look at me and go, well, Merrill, really uh, science is in an observation state. We have no idea. We have no idea. We have CTE cases, keep in mind, only 300 in the medical journal. Now, I'll say 300. There's 333 articles been written in the New York Times alone on this. <laughs> so you talk about the numbers and the, the hysteria and the media drive in it. We're just like, wow, I can see why. And I've seen the headlines. I could see if people didn't know what I know, have lived what I've lived, how they could pull their kids out and be scared to death. But when I start asking the science, the true scientists, the people with integrity who know what they're doing, who have no real agenda, they're like we're in an observation state. That's all we're in. We got we got cases where um, nobody's ever played sports. They didn't have a concussion. They never played football. I go, how, how do you blame that CT pattern on them when they're not football to blame? And there's all kinds of cases like that, but obviously nobody knows about that. 
So once I understood really what the science really was saying, and keep in mind, what the science papers say, the people who write them are the exact same people that are quoted in the media. And that really disturbed me. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So the people that wrote the science paper are the people that are being quoted in the New York Times, and they're contradicting their own science, meaning, let's just put it this way, the 110 out of 111 brains, okay? That science paper, it says, I'm paraphrasing here, but it has the word caution. You cannot use this to really, um, to really define any level or degree of disease. It's paraphrasing, but that's what the science paper says. The word caution is there. That's not paraphrasing. It is says there. Caution, you can't use this study for re- a litany of reasons. Then in the New York Times, that exact same person is quoted as saying, this is clear evidence that the disease is more severe than we thought. She wrote the paper, and it says, caution, you can't say this. And then she does. And I'm like, to me, that's an abuse of the Hippocratic oath, too, from a medical perspective, from a science perspective. Um, and I can see when all you're going to see is the headlines, you're going to be scared to death. You're going to be like, oh, my gosh, listen, I'm a parent. At the end of the day, I'm most passionate about kids who are playing sports, parents that are confused and don't know really what the truth is. That's why I wrote this book. Those are the things that sparked me to write the book. And that's why I want people to read the book, because you owe it to yourself to just understand the whole truth. And we're going and to not live your life in fear versus, you know, live your live your life off of a headline. Totally agreed. And we're going to dive deeper into the meat from this book and some of the research that you look at versus the individuals who uh, do a good job of working with brains, working with head injuries on a day to day basis. But to give people a little bit more context. Look, you're one of the, the first two or three guys that I can recall hearing about the subject of concussions when I was growing up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It was you, it was Troy Aikman, it was also Steve Young. And you actually yeah. retell how your career ended because of head injuries. Take us back to those final few plays uh, that you had playing for the Chicago Bears in the NFL and what transpired in the hours, days, and weeks afterward. Well, I will tell you this, in 1994 um, – you got to realize, and I think this is always important for people to understand, 1994, okay? It's not 2004. It's not 2014. It's 1994. I had just signed a free agent deal for the Chicago Bears. I had been doing cognitive testing with the Pittsburgh Steelers since 1991. They started doing that on a voluntary basis. Well, when I went to the Bears in 94, they never had, they didn't have a neurologist on staff. They weren't doing cognitive testing. And I got a severe concussion on a Monday night game in Kansas City. Now, when I say severe, here's really the two signs of severity. Your amnesia, meaning your cognitive ability, you know, how long does it take to really recover and start, you know, getting back to your cognitive senses, and stability. Those are really the two key things that tell you how severe head trauma is. Um, And any type of trauma should be treated seriously. But those tell you the most severe. Well, shoot, I didn't, I don't remember, I had amnesia was struggling cognitively for some 10 hours. No, that tells you right there that it's severe. And I had gotten a scan to take me to the hospital to do get a scan to make sure I didn't have bleeding on the brain because that's about all they kind of really knew in 1994 to do um, because they didn't want me on the plane, obviously flying home, because if you have that going on, um, there's going to be disastrous consequences mm-hmm. um, from that. So I didn't have that. Um, the scan, the MRI was fine, flew home. Now, here's where it really was when you talk about the disconnect. I got cleared to play opening day five days later over the phone. 
not even, I never saw a neuropathologist. I never really saw any medical doctor again. I got cleared over the phone by after answering a few questions. And I remember one of the main one main ones was how you feeling. Even though I had a headache and I didn't feel good, I was like, I feel good. Now keep in mind, people. I got to remember, 1994. What do players know? I, I didn't know anything. I wasn't told any symptoms. I'm, I'm a headache. I'm surely not going to share a headache. That's 1994. That wouldn't happen today, which is very important. Um, and if it does, hopefully we can educate and inform people so it doesn't. So I returned to play. Um, about five weeks later, I take a similar blow against the Buffalo Bills in Chicago. The, my face mask had gotten crushed across my, uh, my face, cut my chin open. So when I went to the sideline, um, after I'd run a couple more plays, they were really taking my face mask off, stitching my chin up, that they realized I wasn't responding to them. I guess they, and I was told this because I don't remember it. So they start asking me questions. They realize I'm not responding. So they take me to the training room. Now, this is the only part of all this I remember. I was actually sitting on a training table. One of our linebackers, Vincent Smith, was, had hurt his ankle, and he was on, sitting on the other table. And he asked me, he goes, how are you feeling? Okay, I said, he goes, you all right? And I remember thinking, no, I'm not. And my eyes started to flutter, and I, I guess I went into cardiac arrest. Well, first of all, I went into cardiac arrest. I don't remember going into it, but I go into cardiac arrest. And I actually, when they started resuscitating me, I actually got up and walked to the ambulance. Now, I don't remember any of that. I don't remember anything until really being in the hospital. The next thing I remember, I, 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 met, I moved my, I moved my, uh, my left hand. To, I, must have went, I went to scratch my eye or something, and I about knocked myself out because I had broken my hand a week before. And because what had happened to me, they just put a cast on my hand. I didn't know why they put a cast on my hand. Hmm. So now I'm sitting there in intensive care, cast on my hand, thinking, honestly, I'm like, how did I get here? How did this happen? And I keep my, this is honestly what I'm thinking through this process. I got a helmet on. How does this happen? So what ultimately what that message is from that perspective is just the improper care that I got with the Chicago bears. Now this is not to attack the Chicago bears because facts are 1994. Listen, things were being learned. The Pittsburgh Steelers were doing cognitive testing. I could say, well, why weren't the Chicago Bears doing it? Well, they didn't know what the Steelers were doing. And you'll learn in science, and anytime you evolve, it oftentimes, it just takes time. You know, you got egos involved. You know, people got to understand it. They want more research. Well, keep in mind, right after that happens to me, the Bears, I think the Eagles, become one of the first two teams in NFL history to make it cognitive testing mandatory. So that did change. But the care that I got or the improper care, I was thinking, wait a minute, how can it be like this in Pittsburgh and not like this in Chicago? My thought process is, how do we make that league-wide? Now, all I'm really thinking about is the NFL, to be honest with you, that time. Now, when I have kids, and then my son wants to play football, I'm thinking, okay, this is exciting. I can help you sports. I can help his environment. That if my son gets a concussion, people go, are you worried about Bo getting a concussion? I'm like, no. I've never worried about that, and here's why. Because I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to treat it right. And I know there's treatments available. There's all, the protocol was vital. If we implement protocols and we take care of the injury, right there, a large portion of what was going wrong is fixed because we weren't doing anything for it. We ignoring it. So just to do that alone makes sports safer and better. One of the biggest eye-openers for me, Merrill, when reading this book is the lack of transparency by the Boston University CTE Center. They really are the authoritative voice in 2018 in terms of what people 
think they believe about CTE and its links to football and just how detrimental football is for individuals playing it at the professional level, even at the youth level. Now, this group is uh, is uh, not very transparent in terms of the detail of their work. Why do you think that is? Because they're hiding something. Listen, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't anybody want to be transparent and honest? You're hiding something. You have something so secretive. And listen, so people understand, science is not like that. Science, you look at um, Alzheimer's, been working on that for what, nearly 100 years? Okay, there's 27 neuropathologists working on that around the world. Of all the brain diseases, and I have asked this question from a, a ton of different neuropathologists, I'm like, is this common? I mean, why is it you just, just one group work on one subject? And they're like, no. In all brain disease, it's always a collaborative effort. In fact, you hardly could go anywhere in science without that. And for, for whatever reason, that is, like how, that is exactly how it is. And what's, what's disturbing from it in, in a large group is that, I'll go back to the headlines, the headlines that are driven from a lot of these science papers and the people talking in the media are the people who wrote the science papers. They contradict the, exact, the actual science paper. And that's one thing we do in the book is we explain the science to you. Um, we got a web, website, brainwashbook.com, that we have the science papers on there so you can read them. And this is not like Dr. Cummings and I wrote a science paper versus their science paper. It's what the science is saying versus what they say in the media and the absolute contradictions that they make on a consistent basis. Let's use age, age of exposure. Because I think that's what I'm most passionate about. That's what you're probably your listeners will be most concerned about. As you hear all of this, um, these headlines about ban tackle football, um, um, landmark studies. Okay, first of all, there's no landmark studies. Here's one thing that has to happen in science. You have to replicate things, duplicate things over and over to say, hey, one of two things. We're on the right course. This is saying something to us. Or we got to look elsewhere. Well, from the Mayo Clinic to Vanderbilt to Boston University, the science actually has spoken to us. Nobody can replicate or duplicate anything as far as the, the exposure time, the, the exposure science, meaning when your kids start playing contact sports or use sports, um, are they most more susceptible, more susceptible from age seven to fourteen than fourteen and on? Well. I'm going to use my MD and my PhD because this is how this whole subject started with this. People say, well, you shouldn't start tackle football until you're 14. I'm like, why? Well, what is the, what is the scientific evidence that you wouldn't start till age 14? And anybody who arbitrarily came up with that number has never coached. They're not certified to coach because there's one thing that they should know happens around that magical age of, you know, 13, 14. Puberty. Kids go from 105 to 165. So, why would you want them to start playing when they're bigger and stronger and faster? So you have to ask, when is, I start thinking, well, the brain's probably not fully developed then until age 14. That's why they do it. Brain's not fully developed to age 25. So you're like, well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't you just use say, age 25 then? Why would you say age 14? Well, they go, well, at age 10 or 11, your IQ is being developed. These emotional other things are being developed. So I'm like, okay, so wait right there. And, it's not a concussion. It's these subconcussive things that we explain in the book. There's nothing more than science fiction. And they also fill the wrinkle of any sudden shift. So a sudden shift can be riding on a roller coaster, jumping on a trampoline, having a pillow fight, 
if you ever went to recess or lunch and tackled one another or ran into each other, I coached youth basketball. I will tell you this, about age seven and eight, when kids are just learning how to really walk and dribble and you've got to do that around nine other people, there's more collisions on a basketball court than are on a football court or a football field with equipment. So I'm like, well, wouldn't we have epidemics of just IQ drops by time kids got into high school and college? Wouldn't we have all of these emotional and social that we could not figure out, and now we were able to go, aha, it was because you played contact sports between ages 10 and 11. I go, is that anywhere? No. So you don't have, like, any one person, like one person that you can say, the reason they played youth football, this is the cause of it. Not one. Keep in mind, they only have several hundred million people to pick from. You would be one of them. I am one of them. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. How can – and then other – Vanderbilt tried to duplicate or replicate what Boston University did, saying that it's a problem if you play at that age. Mayo Clinic did it. All of them come up with the complete and opposite of that. And they, in fact, they find out that actually the age of, uh, of exposure to any contact sport, kids are smarter and live longer. And they're less susceptible to having any type of this CT pattern. And keep in mind, CT pattern has been found in people who have never played sports, never played contact sports, never had a concussion. So, when you look at that just common sense-wise, well, if you have groups over here who never played sports, never had a concussion, never played football, you start doing things like obesity, um, opioids, drugs, alcohol, age, possible gen- genetics, once science moves on to that far, all of these other things become paramount in your evaluation process. Well, because there's no football there, you can't put it anywhere. So how does football lead the charge when football is a part of somebody's life in that area? And keep in mind, these are NFL players, too, people who have played in the league. So to skip some 60 years of life and say, aha, this happened back in youth football is not only a stretch. Scientifically, I'll tell you, it's not, it is impossible, and it didn't happen, and there's no evidence of it. But, yeah, that's the headlines that we see. That's the headlines that are driven. And if you don't read the science paper, if you don't understand the science paper, I mean, you will get misled by the headlines. Listen, I did television for 22 years, and every time we got ready to do the draft, I always said this. TV lies. Highlights really lie. (laughs) And headlines do, too. Because we talk about a college player, and they're like, how can you say this guy won a national championship? He won the Heisman Trophy. I'm like, those are awards, okay? The skill set is what you look at, and the only way you can look at that is really on the tape. Well, that's about this. You've got to go understand the science, look at those science papers to understand the facts. And they're there. This isn't my word. I'm just telling you what they really say. I'm telling you what the science say. You can go read them. You do it for yourself. We encourage people to do that. We're not hiding anything. I'm just presenting the information to you. I'm presenting you the truth. Let you read it. And then empower yourself with the right information. And that's a much better way to make choices in our life you know, than to run around in fear and scared to death. And to be clear about uh, what you do when writing this book, you actually state throughout that you're not saying that taking repeated blows to the head is necessarily good for somebody. But you said one of the key things, especially for those who suffer 
concussions, yourself included, and you use the example of how you were able to eventually recover from what ended your football career, is making sure to properly treat the concussions uh, in the aftermath to give time and also do some other things to help the condition subside. What are some of the things that people should consider looking into if they or perhaps a loved one, a child, does suffer a concussion? Well, uh, Trey, it's an excellent point, and here's where I'm going to go back to 2003. This is why I was excited about my son playing. I was going to have a protocol, and here was my protocol. I told my kids right away, and here's what's funny. Kids, okay, once I explained this to the kids, they're like, okay, I got it. I said, listen, football's a tough game for tough people. It's not for everybody, but it's also an intelligent game for smart people. So if we get hurt, we're going to handle that self-correctly, and that's when I address, if we get a concussion, A, the first thing, if parents do nothing more, listen to this, Remove your kids. Don't let them return to whatever athletic environment they're a part of. And you didn't play the next week. That was part of my protocol. It's the exact same thing I presented to Congress in 2008 when things were done in the NFL and NCAA. Nothing was being done for the 95% of youth football players in this country are 8 to 18. We're not doing anything there. I challenged them to do basically the same protocol I've been doing for several years. The second somebody has head trauma, remove them. Don't let them play the next week. And in the in the process now, I mean, this is much advanced now. We, we have baselines. Um, you you get treatments. You get evaluated before you return to play. But not everybody has great access. The treatments that are available now, especially in our on the book, we talk about this and we give you great information on on where to go get get help. But UPMC out of Pittsburgh is one of the really the pioneers and the, and the, the groundbreakers on the treatment aspect of trauma because they evaluate all concussions. They believe there are six areas of concussions. Um, I'll give you an example. My son is, is, was a patient, okay? And his con- first concussion came from slipping in a shower, not even on a football field. So you could, you got to say, you got to widen your scope. This doesn't just happen on a football field and athletic events. It can happen anywhere and anytime. Well, taking him there, making a long story short, when he had his two concussions in a very in a close proximity, I took him to UPMC. The cognitive program that they put him on, the physical program they put him on, in 10 days they, had, they were able to repair and heal up the area where he was vulnerable, where, where his brain had been traumatized. And I'm going to tell you this, it wasn't. The, the confidence that I got from it was the confidence I saw in Bo after he got to a point where he could tell that he had healed cognitively. Yeah, and that was about a 10-day span when he was like, I heard him on the I hadn't talked to him for a couple of days, and I heard his voice, and I was like, I hadn't heard that voice in two years. But the clarity that he had in it, the strength he had into it, the confidence that he had. And Bo was never thought or worried about getting a concussion again. Why? Because he knows there's a treatment for it and there's protocols for it. And those things in place make it better and safer for our kids in all environments. And that's why I tell parents all the time, hey, make sure that your coaches have a protocol. Ask that question. If they don't, I'll be the first one to tell you, get them out. If they don't know how to handle it and they're not addressing it, that's not the environment I want my kids in. But I would tell you this, today's age, if they don't have a protocol and they're way behind, but if they do, go ahead and ask questions. What do they do? And listen, you're a gatekeeper too. Keep your eyes on your kids. Watch it. If, they, if you see some, your kid walk up and have a little subtle wobble to them, which was ha- what happened to me in youth sports, in 15 years of coaching youth football and, and camps, I had two concussions, and they were both ages, thir- one age 13, one age 14. 
And both kids got up, and there was a little wobble to them. And I knew right then, all right, that's not good. And I get them off the field. Didn't let them return to play. So we have to have eyeballs on there. We have to watch them, remove them. And there's treatments and therapies. The book has that. That's why it should be exciting for parents. The war is, our parents are scared to death. Well, shoot, with the treatments, protocols, equipment, instruction, the things that are available today, man, we should be sprinting to athletic events for our kids to get them active, keep them involved in sports, get them moving, keep them moving to help establish and develop some healthy lifestyles for them. We should be excited, not in fear. That's what really bothers me is that so many people are in fear by a headline, something they saw or something they read, but they don't really know. And this book will help you know. Very well said. Uh, Merrill, we're at our time limit here, but do you have five more minutes just to answer a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. Um, uh, just a few more things here, Merrill. The, the new book is Brainwashed, The Bad Science Behind CTE and the Plot to Destroy Football. Will you be donating your brain for research when you die? Well, I'm, you know what, that's a great question. Actually, the second that I get a brain bank that I can trust, absolutely. And what I say about trust is that we have to widen this scope. What's, been, what's happened so far in this arena of science is they have taken only brains from people who have had cognitive issues or some type of problem and looked at them. You can't find answers there. Better yet, one night I can't sleep, and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm thinking about this. I'm, I'm bothered by so many things. And I'm like, how come females are not involved in this? How can you exclude a gender and think you've got any answers? And people, the neuropathologists would tell me, oh, because they, the girls don't play football. And I'm like, no, that's not true. A good dear friend of mine, a colleague for years, the queen of football, Susie Colbert, <laughs> played youth football when I was playing youth football in Philadelphia. Okay. Women have been playing football. Girls have been playing football. How can you exclude them and think you're going to have any answers? This scoop, scope has to be wide open, looked at all different arenas, and we need brain banks that do that. When I find that brain bank, that is the brain bank that I will donate to. Not a brain bank like Boston University where only wants the ones that are afflicted. I mean, here's what they want. They want just Alzheimer's brains, and then they tell the rest of the world everybody has Alzheimer's. That's not what we need because there's too many cases. People have the pattern of CTE, never played football, never played contact sports, never had a concussion. How do you answer that? That does tell us scientifically you better widen your scope. You better keep looking. And you can't keep blaming one thing. You can't keep blaming football and you can't keep blaming sports. That's what the science tells you, especially when you find CTE patterns outside that arena. Widen the scope. So when you find that, and, once, and those will come about. Um, absolutely. That will be, be a definite uh, passion of mine once I find that right brain bank. And uh, you also point out throughout this book that it's important that the sport adjusts, not just the sport itself, but also the individuals responsible for the sport. So at the youth levels, it's coaches and parents understanding the seriousness one of their kids does uh, suffer a head injury. The NFL level, of course, we see people griping uh, about some of the safety precautions being made right now, but that's for the good of the game and the individuals responsible for playing the game as well. You express a ton of support for USA football's practice guidelines for uh, tackle football, what are some of the recent changes implemented by USA Football to help improve safety at the youth levels? Well, I tell you, another, I tell you this, it, this is a great question, so people understand this. 
from the media perspective, you kind of you hear like you know, um, you know, it's all these repetitive blows to the head these kids are taking over a period of time. They act like we're playing football every day of the week for 52 weeks out of the year. We play eight to 10 weeks out of the year at the most. We practice. Now I'm going to use my practice, and this is kind of the protocols I tried to pass on to USA football. Obviously, they built it from there and made it even much better. But we only practiced two days a week, and we played on Saturday. I only had one, one live session for 15 minutes once every two weeks. The only two concussions I had in a seven-year period was when they got to ages 13 and 14, which was in the game setting. The things that we are doing in a football perspective from, I mean, just I helped launch a professional league called Your Call Football, okay? We never had one live scrimmage we play our, before we played our first game. But the drills that we use, I mean, all of the, the different, uh, the equipment that can be used now, um, the different tools it can use so you can learn how to really tackle right and play the game correctly without tackling one, one another, you can be an excellent tackler and a bit much better football player. And that's also the same thing, taking on a block, getting off a block, making blocks. People act like it's just tackling. That's just that's a fraction of the game. There's so many things that need to be taught and that you can teach without doing the one-on-ones and having live contact. Keep in mind, when I played youth football, you know who, you, who we used to cat, who we used to tackle in our scrimmages in youth football, and we practiced five days a week. We tackled our coaches. Okay, now, if you tackle, like, think about this. If you heard about that today, you would be like, "How in the world could that happen?" Okay, <laughs> and keep in mind there was an era where you couldn't drink water because you're considered soft. Yep. Okay, when you think of how we have evolved, where we are from the instruction and all the things I just mentioned, we. We play the game 10 to 12 weeks out of the year, okay? We only practice now. I don't know. Other leagues may practice more. But what's going on in it now has really shifted and changed. How you go about teaching, how you go about learning, it's not the one-on-one. It's not the combat thing. It's not the stuff that one drill you see at ESPN where two kids are lining up and running into each other. Yes, that is moronic, and that is archaic. And if we find environments like that, yes, we could go in and we shut those coaches down. Don't let those kids, those type of coaches coach your kids we are all the gatekeepers that's why i tell people in youth football this is not about you know a school running it or a college running it or a professional uh, team running it we're the gatekeepers all of us are responsible we all have a stake in this and we all need to be educated and informed to help our kids and these environments where they how they practice how they play the joy that comes from it I'm just telling you this. When I talk about the joy, when I've looked at these kids in their face, okay, when they've done something right, they feel it, the success they have in it, like you have to experience that in life to know that's the greatest experience. I tell people all the time, I wish I could make a living being a youth football coach. I would still be a youth football coach. It's the greatest thing I ever did in sports. Hmm. I mean, kids are genuine. They're honest. They're fun. They put things in perspective. They have joy. And when they learn how to do things right, they have success in that. And the dreams that come from it, the hope, the confidence, the relationships, the things that are built, things you could teach in, a, in an athletic environment that you can't teach anywhere else. You know, good habits, accountability, work together. All of these things that matter to your life's work, to be able to help develop that at a young age – that's these amazing things. That's what I love about it. That's why we got to keep building our sports, making sure 
they're better. And when people understand all of the things that should be a part of sports and that are a part of sports, how much safer their kids are than when even you or I or any parent right now when they played. Finally, Merrill, you finished the book with an example about the value of youth football. Would you mind sharing the story about your son Bo's friend Josh with our listeners? Well, you know what? I, I, I've always listened. I love kids. I love my kids without end. Um, I've learned more by listening than I've ever learned by talking. And uh, I like listening to my kids. And my, I learn a lot from them. And kids teach you a lot. And he had a friend that he wanted to see if I would take him and his sister to school and pick them up. And I was like, that's no problem. And, and Josh was a bigger kid. And um, I remember talking to Bo one day, and he was just telling me how he was – he was discouraged. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life and stuff. And, and he's a kid, you know, gosh, around 11, you know, 12 years old. And I just, the discussions there happen, happen. And I'm like, Bo, do you think he'd want to play football? He goes, I'll, I'll ask him. So we asked Josh and Josh wanted to, but he couldn't, uh, he, he didn't want to because he couldn't afford basketball. I mean, football cleats. And I was like, well, listen, I, in the book, I, I said, I reached out to Reebok and Eddie White, a good friend of mine. And I get cleats for all the kids because I didn't want one kid isolated. I wanted to make this a team thing. So everybody gets cleats. He comes and plays. Now, he's not practiced. It hasn't been a week of practice. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this kid's really good. This, this kid has a chance to do something with this particular sport if he works hard at it to get an education. So I pulled him aside and I said, Josh, I'm going to tell you this. Now, I'm not, not, I'm not talking about the NFL. Okay? The NFL is for 0.02% of high school kids who ever go there. The, the numbers, okay, that's not the point. This sport, you could develop, and you could develop, you could get an education from. You're good enough. You keep working at this. You pay, pay attention in school. You work hard at school. You work hard on this football field. You keep developing. You live, keep developing passion. You'll do something with this. Well, sure enough. You know, Josh left actually the next year, went to Indiana. But Bo stayed in touch with the team. They've always stayed in touch. I've always kept touch what he was doing. Well, my my nephew goes to Notre Dame uh, on a scholarship. And uh, I go from one of their spring games, and who's the linebacker for Notre Dame? That just I, I knew he'd signed there, but I hadn't seen him forever, Josh Braha. Hmm. He's a linebacker at Notre Dame. Now, he trans- he's transferred since, but I'm like, okay, that's the hope. Listen, it doesn't mean they're going to go – to college, there's so many things that sports spark, you know, hopes and passions, dreams, how they think, you know, the confidence they get to do other things. I mean, that, that is what is so awesome about sports, um, especially youth sports. And that's why I encourage parents to get involved in it. And remember, it's about them. It's not about you. If you think like that, if you – listen, one of the great experiences. I mean, we got we, – we played this one team. We worked so hard, and I was so disappointed that we lost. And I'm walking up the hill with the kids, and I'm just thinking all this. I'm so disappointed, just so disappointed. And I hear them talking. You know, they're around 10, 11, and they're talking about um, whose house are we going to go to? Um, are you guys want to get pizza? You want to play? I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, try them out. <laughs> Ain't that the perspective we should have? They, they're worried about pizza and going to each other's house. I'm like, what am I worried about? Seriously, what am I worried about? I'm like, that's up. I'm done. I'm like, this is great. I go. This is how it should be. You know, we played our hardest. They did everything they could. That smiles on their face at the end. Um, I'll tell you something really quick, too, when you talk about what kids bring to you. Um, one year, we were not a very good football team. And I decided, hey, guys, listen, I'm just going to ask you every day after practice in the game, did you give me everything you had? And every day, for the most part, they'd say, yes, coach, I gave you everything I had. I said, that's good. 
So um, one day I asked him, I go, you guys give me everything you had? And one kid goes, no. I was like, I was like, I was a little shocked by that. I'm like, but I love God. I was like, okay, let me ask you this. <laughs> Do you feel different the days you've told me you've given me everything you had versus today when you didn't? He said, yeah, coach, I do. I go, do you feel like you let yourself down and your teammates down? He said, I do. I go, what feeling do you like the best? He goes, I like it when I give everything I got. I go, well, then what are we going to have the rest of your I'm going to give you everything I had. Okay, are you kidding me? Like, I get chills in the back of my, my, my hair thinking about it. Just like, I mean, that's, that's what it's about, teaching wow. kids that, you know, living those type of things with the kids. And that's what sports allows us to do, especially at the youth level. No doubt about that. He is Merrill Hodge, former NFL running back, football analyst for ESPN, and currently an activist in concussion research, prevention, and treatment of brain injuries, as evidenced by the excellent new book, Brainwashed, The Bad Science Behind CTE and the Plot to Destroy Football. It's available now wherever books are sold. Merrill, thank you so much for the time today. It was an honor getting to speak with you, and uh, congratulations on getting this great piece of work out there. You're the man, Trey. Thank you for the time, buddy.